Episode 11 is here, the big one one. <laughs> and we're back to talking about using video as a science communication tool. That's how we started this series, with Joss Fong's great insights on the benefits and challenges of video as a way to convey ideas in science. But whereas Joss's work is supported by Vox.com, my guests today are independent science video makers. Together, Ali and Micah Caldwell run the YouTube channel Neurotransmissions. They make videos about neuroscience and psychology, and it's been really fun to see their work evolve over time. It started out with pretty straightforward neuroscience explainer videos that morphed into longer explorations into some topic, and now they regularly put out like 30-minute documentaries about things like neurodevelopment, forms of therapy, and questionable theories in psychology. Their channel has almost 180,000 subscribers, and a few of their videos have been viewed more than a million times. And back when I talked to them, they were just about to release their book, Brains Explained, which I actually have right here on my desk, and <laughs> is, is a very fun read. So um, yeah, I think, I think they know what they're doing, <laughs> and I wanted to look under the hood and see how they pull it off. What are the components of successful independent science communication on YouTube? And how did they navigate the decision to go all in on science communication versus stay in academia and pursue research full time? Quick heads up, I first released this interview on Opinion Science back in June of 2021. It's pretty much exactly the same interview. So if you've listened to that one and you're getting some deja vu right now, that, that's why. But it's just too good and relevant not to include in this science communication series. So you know, what is it they say? Sorry, not sorry. And fun fact, this interview almost didn't happen. When I talked to Ali and Micah, it was in January and it was just a couple weeks before my daughter was born. And that morning, we thought maybe she was coming a couple weeks early. Turned out to be a false alarm. I got to talk to Ali and Micah. And now my kid is walking and talking and Ali and Micah have a kiddo themselves. Anyhow, enough dad talk. Let's jump right into my conversation with the team behind Neurotransmissions. Um, the, the first thing that I wanted to mention is that the video postdoc me now yeah. is maybe the best thing <laughs> <laughs> that exists. I, I, I have watched it a bunch of times and I just watched it again last week and I was like, man, this just so you nailed it. Postdoc me now. I've been here such a long time. I'm published and all. Postdoc me now. And I got a little funding. So how much of that that was you guys? Because I know it's sort of a big uh, group thing, but yeah. I, I get the sense that that I, either one or both of you are behind pulling the strings on that a little bit. The the, the lyrics in the song, so the original lyrics to the song were written by uh, one of my classmates on the drive to our annual retreat uh, a few years before we ever recorded the music video. So that was oh, kind wow. of where the idea for the song came from. Um, but then in terms of the music video, uh, so the way that we did those music videos, so the first one we just kind of got pulled into by accident, but that was actually the third music video that we did. And the way that we did the second two was we sort of did like a group poll of all the grad students in my program and kind of let people suggest songs and talked about options. And then we picked what was, whatever was the most popular. So postdoc me now won out that year. And then, um, we kind of took the reins from there on that project and Micah, especially in terms of thinking creatively about visuals and everything, Micah was really on that. Yeah. So just to sort of give a little bit of background. So the video was made for 
essentially this conference that happens uh, every year, but it rotates to different cities. And so it comes to San Diego about once every two or three years. And so before that, uh, we make these music videos to kind of promote the party that they're throwing at the conference. And that's that was the inspiration for even doing this music video in the first place. And so like Ali was saying, the first one was on accident. We didn't really know what we were doing. We were just like, yeah, I'll just throw a bunch well, of they, I here. mean, they already had the song written. Like they already had it all. They had the lyrics written. They had it all planned out. And then I had just started grad school and I was like, hey, if you guys want like film help, you know, music help, my spouse does a lot of this stuff just like for fun. So if you mm-hmm. want help and they were like, yes, please help us. <laughs> so that kind of started the whole thing. Yeah. But then with Postdoc Me Now, we knew, you know, it, it, we were we keep trying to raise the ante, you know, every time we do one of these. And uh, uh, we already had the lyrics. And so it was just a matter of like doing it creatively and in a way that would pull people in. Uh, and so we tried to make it sort of a one shot looking thing uh, and have the, the lyrics popping up just to really draw folks in. And it ended up doing great. Wow. It's like one of our most popular videos. So yeah, it looks it, it just came out so good. So yeah. th- that means then that the video production stuff was sort of in your back pocket for a long time. And, and sort of, so where did that come from, I guess? Yeah, so I, I have always been kind of a video nerd. I uh, started making music videos with my little brother, just like in our house when I was in high school. And then in college, I uh, started learning special effects uh, and after effects more specifically, I guess, um, through like video co-pilot. I don't know if you're familiar with Andrew mm-hmm. Kramer. He's this guy who put up all these free tutorials back in, you know, the early 2000s. Um, and so anytime there was a video project in college, people would come to me and say, hey, you know, can you help me with this? And, uh, and I just started doing that and then uh, started operating like my own small little YouTube channels on the side as well uh, about whatever I was interested in at the time. And then um, that kind of led to eventually making neurotransmissions, which has been great. (laughs) It strikes me, it reminds me, so like growing up, I had a similar, like I just was like toying around in Photoshop constantly in high school, trying to learn After Effects with however I could get my hands on it. Totally. And then, yeah, and then in college, I was in a sketch comedy group and I was the one who was like, we got to make videos. Yeah. We can't just do all this stage <laughs> stuff and and trying to do, do creative things like that. And again, it's just sort of that, you know, it was fun at the time. And then eventually it became useful. Right, <laughs> like, exactly. Oh, it was worth all that time that other people might have said I was wasting. Right. <laughs> And now it actually is paying off in this in this way. So I, I guess that brings me to the question of where neurotransmissions came from, right? If I were to guess, here's my guess, <laughs> is that the, you know, th- this video project, that original one that you said at the beginning of grad mm-hmm. school was sort of like kind of put a, a, a bug in your ear of like, oh, this there's something going on here. <laughs> and then an interest in science communication that just then got connected to this skill set that was already there and and then it took off from there so how close am i on that you're pretty Very dang close, close. yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh when micah was doing his own youtube channel stuff i was like kind of not really into the idea of like being on it originally but i had started to appear in more of his videos and participate a little bit more and then we did this music video and then a friend pointed us at a video contest that's hosted by the society for neuroscience professional society he was like, oh, you guys should check this out. And so we decided to enter because I've always kind of considered myself a writer, but I had never made the connection between writing and science. Like I had never really thought of how I could 
combine those two interests. So I, um, you know, wrote a script for this contest and we filmed it and we won second place in the contest that year. And then we were like, wow, this is pretty fun. Maybe we should keep doing this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it just sort of grew out of, you know, this initial contest and people liked it enough that we're like, oh, maybe there's something to this. Maybe we can combine our interests and have this sort of hobby crossover of writing and filmmaking uh, to have something that we collaborate on. Yeah. So the, the science communication part, it, it was like revealed to you just because this opportunity was sitting at your door or, or, or you had had a, a, an interest in doing science communication before that? No, I just kind of, I mean, I, I was brand new in grad school. I was really convinced at the time, like I'm going to become, you know, I'm going to do a postdoc. I'm going to become faculty. Like I'm going to follow the traditional academic job route. Maybe I'd consider industry, but I always thought of writing as something that I would do in my own time. And it would be creative writing and be fiction. It'd be poetry. Um, I had not really thought about it um, beyond just like starting to get connected to the Twitter science community and starting to kind of build my network in that way. But it really like neurotransmissions came first. And then that led to all of mm. these other opportunities to meet people and be in the space and really sort of think about what that meant long term. Yeah, and the real reason that we got th that we angled the channel the way that we did was, you know, you look on YouTube back, you know, five years ago or whatever, and you search neuroscience and the results that would come up are hour-long lectures, you know, or <laughs> somebody's like crappy iPhone camera of just like, I don't know, showing some experiment. There was not really very much information uh, that was being given about like the basics, you know, about like how neurons work and all that stuff. And so we thought, oh, that's kind of an opening and could be interesting. And uh, Allie has expertise in that area. And so that's where it kind of grew out of. Yeah. So there was a gap in what was out there and you just happened to be ready yep. <laughs> to, yeah. to fill it. Yeah. Exactly. There have been there have been a number of other channels since that are starting to create more content similar to ours, but a lot of it at the time was either like extremely clinical, like, you know, very like med ed kind of animations, or else were just like you know, Khan Academy whiteboard style videos. And we were kind of like, well, I think we can make this a little bit more engaging. And I think we can use, you know, Micah's like leverage Micah's skills as a creator and animator to actually sort of provide some life to these ideas. Um, and that kind of drove that first, we like wrote the whole first season before we even started recording, just planning out this like intro to neuroscience course and mm -hmm. then kind of started expanding from there. Yeah, it is true as a teacher, when you're looking for videos to share, it can be real tough. You go, I don't really stand by any of this. <laughs> right, <laughs> or right. I don't I could do a better job just explaining this stuff in class than than having some of these like like you said, just kind of boring lectures that yeah. maybe have the right content. Um and, and my sense is that even as YouTube has really exploded as a medium, it is easier to be a YouTuber when you don't really have to stand too closely by what you're saying. Yes. And can't just kind of like, oh, I'm gonna record something for like 20 minutes today and then that's right. gonna be my, my video. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I mean, I, I found that it's just like, it's such a slog <laughs> when you're like, if it's gonna be good and right, mm -hmm. it yeah. takes forever. So I wondered if you could sort of talk about, I, I guess an interesting way to frame this would be in the early days during that first season, how did you approach actually putting together one of these videos? And then in a little bit, we'll backtrack and, and, and think about how that's changed since then. Yeah. So at least in the beginning, what did that process look like? 
I mean, back in the day when we first started, like Ali was saying, we would we we wrote out the entire first season, as we called it, you know, where where we had essentially like five videos planned out, uh, and then we would record in bulk. Uh, and the goal was to create a video that was shorter than five minutes, so you could get in, get the info, get out, um, and uh, and using a lot of animation to really bring the concepts to life. Um, so very much more animation heavy uh, and uh, yeah, and also like very kind of high energy to keep people's attention during those five minutes. Very Bill Nye kind of in the first iteration, um, which actually was like one of the number one criticisms we got. Yeah. It was like oh, all, really? those, all those noises in the background are really distracting. <laughs> and we're like, okay, so we're going to stop doing that. Um, so that's definitely been a huge part of it, right? Is adjusting as we've gotten feedback. But um, initially, I mean, there was also the challenge of, working together creatively in a way that we hadn't before. So I don't, I mean, I don't know if this is clear um, on your, you know, to your audience, but Mike and I are also married in real life, uh, in addition to being partners on the channel. And so developing these projects was really challenging and, you know, kind of learning how to like take direction and feedback from each other was challenging. Um, but it was very, very time intensive in the beginning. I think between like from the conception of the first season to actually like filming and posting was like six months and was very focused on like, okay, textbook information. Mm -hmm. um, and we were still learning how to use YouTube effectively at that point. I mean, we, I mean, we're still learning. Nobody knows how to use YouTube effectively. <laughs> but I mean, definitely one of the challenges is that, like you said, YouTube is not optimized for educational content. It's really optimized for entertainment. And as a result, a lot of the things that you have to do uh, for top quality educational content are things that do not play very well with their algorithm. And so mm. we've spent a lot of time, like, you know, at the time we just created our videos and threw them up there and we didn't really think too much about who was watching them or worry too much about our audience size, but spent a lot of time thinking about how do we balance those challenges, right? How do we create content that we stand behind that we're really confident in, but that also is stuff that, you know, people are going to watch. In terms of the, what you've learned about using YouTube effectively, what were some of those changes, right? Like other than just saying like, well, here's the video about this. Enjoy everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right. what, what does it take to get more eyeballs on that? Because I do think so, just to pull back the context for that, the challenge in a lot of science communication is just that issue of getting the word out, right? Right, like, right. It is not the kind of thing that people often willingly step into. <laughs> yeah. And you sort of need to grip them in a way that, that they're going to pay attention. And again, that you're not sacrificing what it is that you're saying. So what right. have you learned outside of the production side, but in the distribution side, what does it take to, to reach people? Yeah, it, it's changed quite a bit, I would say, uh, since we started. Uh, the first thing being, I don't think we are um, as strictly textbook as we used to be. You know, there was a lot of focus on just give them the pure information uh, and, then, and then that's it. Uh, and, and what we found is that Engagement is terrible on that, you know, uh, if people are coming for just the pure information, then that's all that they'll really stay for. And what we found is that personality, uh, personal experiences, something that people can connect with has been a really important piece of uh, not only having people watch the video for longer, but also then giving them a reason to subscribe and to want to like actually see your next video too. So that's been one thing that I think we've started to incorporate more and more. Um, 
as well as like not worrying about time. You know, we used to make these five minute short things and clearly that doesn't perform very well on YouTube. And that has changed, I think, over the years. Uh, uh, and then distribution side, you know, just sort of leveraging social media and, and trying to uh, get it out to the proper channels or sources for people to to want to watch it. Although, frankly, most of our viewership comes from within YouTube's ecosystem uh, from yeah. like browse features and stuff like that. Yeah, I think a really key kind of shift that we've had is, like Micah said, moving away from purely sharing the information and not just like our own, like not just sharing our own personalities, but also starting to focus on topics that are going to be personally relevant to viewers. So some of these, I mean, you know, some of it's kind of cheesy or like not super well backed by science, but it's stuff that people are curious about. So like we, you know, we did a video about the science of gratitude or um, like one of our most popular videos is a video about the science of cannabis. And in that video, we really try to take this very holistic look at cannabis. So both talking about its historical use and sort of demonization in our culture and where that came from and why it is that way. And then also, you know, we actually went into a cannabis dispensary and talked to some of their folks there and, you know, kind of talked about the evidence that it's safe and the evidence that it's not safe and really kind of making it more of this like larger narrative rather than just being like, here's the piece of information that you want. Um, and some people don't love that, right? Because there are people who are just trying to get that piece of information. So some people are like, mm -hmm. I don't care about the history of <laughs> cannabis. But I'm like, yeah, but it's relevant, right? Like if we haven't studied cannabis for 70 years because everybody thinks it's going to kill you, then that's relevant to why we don't know if it's safe or not. So as the content has evolved, I guess my question is how have the your goals evolved? So like wh what, are you, what are you trying to do? If you were to answer the question again five years ago mm -hmm. and today, what are you trying to do with this YouTube channel? What would that be? I think five years ago, we would have said like, oh, it would be great if our videos were used in classrooms, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if it could be used as part of a curriculum or even even if removing one step from that, you know, if anyone could essentially learn a basic neuroscience class by watching our videos. And I think that, you know, we we wanted to sort of establish a base and then and, and we did that with our early videos and then expand out of out from there uh, into other more interesting topics or other different topics. Um, and today I think the focus is, you know, frankly on doing things that we enjoy, yeah. you know, and making videos that appeal to us. Uh, because, you know, if we're excited about it, if we are um, interested in it, then we think that maybe other folks will also find it interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't think there's as much focus on like, how can, you know, what's the most optimized uh, topic that we can talk about right now? Because frankly, we're not really producing at a speed where we can follow trends or anything like that. Uh, so instead, we kind of follow our own passions to make our videos. Yeah. I On my end, I think my motivations have been a little bit different all along because, you know, this is still kind of Micah's like side hustle. This is his like passion project. But this actually, this work has, it is still my side hustle too, but it also led directly to my current career path. I'm a full-time science writer now. So early on, there was definitely sort of a motivational factor of like, oh, this is something I haven't considered doing before. So like, let's do this. Let's practice this. Let's, you know, see how this goes. And then again, this led to all these other opportunities. So kind of continuing to grow my portfolio and my experience and listening to feedback and all of that. Um, and something I think about a lot now, you know, as a full-time science writer who has this sort of side hustle, I think a lot about 
my platform and how I can use this platform to share messages and things that I think are really important. So again, you know, sort of moving away from just talking about things that are very fact, fact focused, which is still, you know, still the focus. Like we still talk, like everything we talk about is evidence-based, but we, you know, talk a little bit more about some of the social science behind things than maybe we used to, and really trying to like talk about these issues, you know, especially as a woman on the internet, especially as a female scientist, you know, there aren't a ton of female science YouTubers out there. So really trying to use this platform that has been growing really steadily since we started to like talk about some of these issues and to make our stance clear on things. Um, you know, initially we were very much about like separating our personal lives from the channel, but now we talk a lot more about how this stuff affects us and how we feel about it, because I think it's really important that if you have a platform that big, you kind of like you said, you should be willing to stand behind it. And that doesn't just mean the facts. That also means the values. Well, and frankly, you know, the, the evidence supports this too. You know, if you look at research coming out about communication, right, and how to effectively communicate something, right, uh, you need to connect with people on their value basis, right, on on what they believe, uh, you know, how they view themselves as people, and you do that through story. So I think we've been trying a lot to build in more narrative, which then inherently means that we kind of include ourselves into that, right, uh, in order to connect with whoever's watching the video so that they don't just get bored by hearing fact after fact after fact. Yeah. Andy knows all about that. I mean, this is like his whole, his <laughs> whole thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Ellie, I was wondering, at what point did you sort of decide to make a shift from the sort of trajectory you thought you were going toward to the, the one you ended up going toward? Like, at what point did it become clear that science writing, science communication was both something that was important enough and that you had the ability to pursue that it seemed reasonable to go all in? Oh, I still literally question this every single yeah. <laughs> day. So I want to like preface it with that. Like there's a lot of career anxiety happening over here. But um, I don't think there was any like one moment during graduate school where I decided that I was going to pursue science communication. It was kind of a cumulative process of both like I loved being at the bench. I loved doing my research. And then when I looked down the barrel of like what a career in academic science was going to be, I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't that I didn't want it. It was just that I didn't want it badly enough. I didn't want to work that many years, not making that much money only to like have to fight over the scraps of academic jobs. I didn't want to have to like move all around the world trying to find an academic position. You know, there's, there's so many things about it. Um, and I also, I mean, some of that honestly was a struggle of just like, I didn't have a ton of opportunities to present my research within the research community. And I didn't feel super connected to that community while all of this YouTube work was giving me this opportunity to really plug into the science communication community and build this network of incredible creators and communicators. Um, and I think just getting enough like consistent feedback over time really, you know, encouraged me to consider this, this possibility of pursuing it as a career. Um, and then, you know, left graduate school and ended up being very lucky to be a, a fellow in science communication at UC San Diego, um, which was a great opportunity. And I mean, just have kind of kept moving in that direction ever since, you know, and, and I do look back very fondly on my days in research. And honestly, like my dream job would be like half research, half science writing, but that doesn't really exist. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's, it is really hard to kind of let go of that identity as a scientist and as a researcher and really move full time into writing. Like I was just talking to someone the other day saying like, I literally 
Like I have written hundreds of scripts for videos. I have a full-time writing job. I just finished writing a book and I still feel weird calling myself a writer. Hmm. So I think it's just kind of one of those like identity things or like in academic research, you really get attached to this identity as a scientist. And it's very hard to shift away from that or to consider like multiple identities in the same way that academic science encourages you to be a scientist. It's a weird, the academic world is a weird culture in that it is one that reinforces that identity where your faculty mentors, obviously that's where they ended up. And so they go, well, this makes sense. (laughs) And the people who go to graduate school often do so, at least in the beginning, imagining that kind of outcome. So it is sort of like, oh, well, this is how it works. And, Mm -hmm. And no other path is really discussed <laughs> or, or, or encouraged. And and I, I have felt this way at toying at one point with looking at like industry type mm-hmm. jobs to be like, you're also kind of leaving the family. There's yeah. a little bit of like a family of, oh, you go to conferences, you see all these people. And then you go, well, if I take a job somewhere else, I'm sort of, I'm outside of it for a little bit. So it totally makes sense that there's, yeah, it is not built to leap outside of that world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in some ways, I think it's like, it's sort of deliberate propaganda, right? Like if you want to convince people that like they want to like put in all these hours for this level mm-hmm. of pay and everything. And that's something I have to think about a lot when I feel um when I'm feeling like, you know, I miss doing the research or I'm feeling like, oh man, like it really, like, because I think the other thing that you really get pushed toward in science is this idea that like you're making a difference, you know, you're, you're changing the world, you're discovering new things about our existence and, and leaving that is hard. And I like the work that I do and I enjoy it, but it doesn't quite have that same level of like novelty. Right. Um, And so I think it really does become this like daily conversation with myself about like, there's, there's a lot of things in this world that I love doing and I can only do, do so many of them mm-hmm. in a day. And so this is what I'm doing right now and I like it and it's good. Good. <laughs> yeah. We were talking with a friend about how, you know, when you start off some of these side hustles, it's sort of like, Ooh, should I be doing this? Is this bad? You know, and, and how that can grow into something that opens up all these other avenues, uh, you know, while you're in grad school, for example, and, uh, you know, and that's what happened with neurotransmissions, really, you know, if you think about it, if, yeah. if we weren't doing this, then you wouldn't be where you are right now. Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> this, I mean, this neurotransmissions is what sets my job applications apart every time. So you, you talked about being embedded in like a science communication community, uh, and you've done some work in terms of, I think, like helping scientists talk to the public. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So do you have... For people who might be listening who are academic scientists, researchers, who would love to be able to talk about their work or their science in a broad way, what kinds of things would you recommend to people as they think about doing this in an effective way? Yeah, I would recommend a um, lot, oh, lot of thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> the first, and I think the biggest thing is just do it, um, which is to say that you know, the metaphor I always like to use is like, you would never expect to play Carnegie Hall the first time you pick up a violin. And the same is true for any kind of project or idea you have. And so really just starting to create or communicate in some way or another, I think is really the key because it gets very easy to get hung up on like, oh, I have to come up with the perfect project or the perfect blog title or whatever. Um, So really just to start doing it. Uh, But along with that, 
two kind of add-ons. One is to look into existing resources and, you know, kind of learn about the literature. You know, as you're aware, there is a lot of science on best practices for communication, especially when you're communicating around something like science, which is a challenging topic right now in a lot of communities. Um, so really taking the time to like look at existing resources. If you can, if you have the resources or you know financial backing to do it, to try and take a course or get some books and just learn a little bit about it. And also make sure that you're not uh, recreating the wheel. I have run into a lot of people who have very, very cool ideas about like science communication projects they want to do and have not bothered to take the time to figure out that like there are already people doing that exact thing. And I, I find that there, there are a fair number of scientists who think that getting into science communication is easy. They're like, mm. oh, like, oh, I can totally do that. I just, just talk about science. Totally. I can do that. And <laughs> it's a thing that requires skill. Like this is a thing I have spent the last, you know, five, six years developing a skill set in. And it it took time to get there. It took a lot of practice and effort. And so don't assume that it's easy. Uh, don't assume that you can just like waltz into a space and do the thing perfectly just because you're a scientist with a PhD. Because I have colleagues right now who, you know, definitely don't have PhDs and definitely are way better at parts of my job than I am because they have a skill set that I don't have yet. Can you, you mentioned courses and books. Are there, is there anything in particular you would point people to? Um, off just the top just of to my, put you on the spot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Off the <laughs> top of my head, um, if you're a graduate student, I would recommend looking into ComSciCon. Uh, it's a workshop by graduate students for graduate students in science communication um, and science communication skills. So there's local workshops as well as a national workshop. Recommend you check that out. It's also free to attend. Um, if you have some financial resources, something like the Alda Center trainings or the Compass Science Communication trainings are great resources. They just tend to be kind of pricey. And Alan Alda has a book that I think a lot of people have really liked. I haven't finished reading it myself, but it's called, um, what is it called? It's like, if I understood you, would, would my face look like this or something <laughs> like that? Um, yeah, it's something like that. But, you know, Alan Alda has been a huge proponent of sort of thinking about how do we kind of better connect non-scientists with science and make them feel more part of the process? So he has a, a bunch of work out on this stuff that would be good to check out. I, I guess the the trick for getting started is like how? Like if someone goes, I'm interested in, in science writing, do you just start a blog, start a YouTube channel? <laughs> I, I mean, there are so many things out there that you could do. Yeah. But is there like, if someone goes, I just say, I just, I'm interested. I want to do this, but I don't know where people go. Yeah. Do you have any sense of that? Yeah. I think it helps to think a little bit about sort of your goals and like why you're communicating. Cause I think it's very different if you're like interested in sort of advocating for science funding versus like teaching kids about science. Right. But I think kind of the best first step is just to see what kinds of communities already exist, like in your immediate area. Right now, it doesn't even matter if it's local. Right. Um, but you know, is there a museum where you can go and volunteer in the museum? Or uh, is there a local science advocacy group in your area? For example, there's a group called the Union of Concerned Scientists where you can help get help, you know, writing op-eds or help advocate for stuff. So I think just kind of trying to push into like what your goals are, like, are you trying to do science journalism? Because if that's something you're interested in, then there's fellowships for that. Or there are places that sort of actively take pitches from grad students about their science. Or, you know, maybe your institution has an internship where you can work on this kind of thing. Um, but if you're really interested in policy, you know, maybe there's like a local politician, like you could start kind of doing more of that kind of advocacy 
work. Um, so really just start, I think starting local and thinking about what you're trying to do, but also thinking about your skill set, I think is really valuable, right? Like we backed into video by accident because Micah was already doing video. If he hadn't been, I don't know that we would have ever gotten here. Um, and so like if you hate writing, but you <laughs> like talking to people, maybe do a podcast instead of writing science articles. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Just marry your passion with your skill set because if you like want to make videos but you don't know how to make them it's like okay well <laughs> uh, maybe you I find mean, something else that's what happened in march when all the professors had to start making videos oh. Oh. <laughs> and, I, and yeah. I was i was like oh thank god i'm like ready for this like yeah. i i was able to just like transition immediately that's and cool. i had colleagues who were like ah the sound isn't working like, oh boy <laughs> So so even outside of, of like trying to find a medium, a lot of scientists will find themselves in a position of being asked to talk about something um, or, you know, discuss the media. I actually noticed, I think, during these times where, you know, travel doesn't happen that I, I almost think there are a lot more scientists providing opinions on mm -hmm. news programming just because it's so easy to reach out to people who are experts yeah. wherever they live. And so I can imagine someone who goes, I understand the importance of being able to talk about what my science says about something, but I don't I don't know the first thing about saying that in a way that'll make sense to anyone other than my colleagues. So yeah. even if we get like at the lowest level, just like how do you talk about science to people who do not already have expertise in science? The phrase that comes to mind that, that stuck with me, I, I think I heard this at a conference or something like that, is to... Uh, this is this, you're going to say the Alan Alda quote that he gave on campus. So oh, did he? Yeah. Uh, the the quote was, "Don't underestimate people's understanding of science. Always overestimate their understanding of jargon." More it, or less. It, it, the quote is, the quote is, "Never underestimate people's intelligence. Always overestimate their vocabulary." That's what it is. So, what does that mean? <laughs> so, essentially, you know, pe people can get stuff. You know, don't don't worry about them understanding concepts, as long as you are speaking to them in the same language, right? I think uh, anyone who reads academic journals knows that uh, it can be very dense. And even if you are in the field, you might still be confused when you, you know, finish it at the end. You're like, what did I just read? <laughs> um, so same thing here, you know, talk to people on a level that anyone can understand, not that you're simplifying concepts, not that you're, you know, changing them in any way, but um, more just using I guess, relatable terminology and, and phrases and all that stuff that, uh, that anyone could understand. Yeah. And something I encounter a lot in my current work. So I, I work as a, basically as a public information officer for university and something I encounter a lot right now are scientists are kind of trained to feel like they're only an expert in this very, very small thing. And then they feel like they can only speak to like this very specific topic. Like I can only talk about the influence of astrocytic proteins on neuronal outgrowth, right? Um, but the reality is that the process of doing scientific research is in its own way an experience that gives you some qualifications to talk about science, right? Like you understand the scientific process. You know what it's like to be doing the research. You know what it's like to have to review the literature. Like you have thought very deeply and critically about these things in a way that a lot of people who have never worked in science have not done. I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of people haven't. And, you know, so for example, like, if I have somebody who's like, well, I'm not really qualified to speak about vaccine technology because I'm a pediatrician. And I'm like, 
You are though, like you understand a lot about this and probably way more than like 99% of the population. And so really kind of feeling confidence and ownership over your expertise, I think can really help with this too. Cause it's like part of what is effective, right? We said is, is the personality and, and the person communicating it. And some of that is letting your excitement for this stuff come through and talking about it in a way that people can see how much it means to you and not getting too hung up on like, oh, but I'm only the expert in this like very tiny thing and I don't want to upset my colleagues. That's understandable. I get it. Like I totally understand there are politics that might prevent you from feeling comfortable speaking on a topic. But if your worry is that you don't think you're enough of an expert in this science, you're probably fine. Especially like when people like I had a really funny interaction with a friend once where he was like telling me about his research and I was like telling him how I would explain it to a non-scientist. And he was like, well, I image these I image these uh, protein molecules. And I was like, OK, so you take pictures of this protein. And he's like, no, I image it. <laughs> and I was like, that doesn't mean anything to somebody who isn't a scientist. Like, I get what you're saying, right? You're, you're worried about being like super accurate on this. But words mean different things in different contexts. And being aware of that is really important. It reminds me, so I faced a similar kind of feeling and I saw someone write about it once when they were trying to coach science writers or scientists who want to write about stuff for the public. And the, the concern is like, well, when my colleagues see this, they're going to realize I'm speaking outside of what I know or I'm oversimplifying. Mm -hmm. And the point is kind of like, but you're you're not addressing your colleagues in this yeah. context, mm -hmm. right? You are addressing someone who needs the first three steps to understand where this is going. If they're so motivated, eventually they'll learn all the nuance and right. nitty gritty pieces of this. But you are not speaking to your colleagues. You're speaking to people who are unfamiliar with right. all the pieces. Right. Yeah. I think it, I think it's a, a line to walk, you know, because you don't want to over project having expertise in something that maybe you, you aren't totally familiar with. But to Ali's point, you know, you, there are, there is sort of a, a, probably a base knowledge that people have that you can still communicate uh, effectively and confidently uh, that isn't sort of that overstepping. So Yeah. Well, and I think just being clear about your qualifications too is a really right. important component of it. So like I have had the opportunity to do a lot of talking about the vaccine um, at work, right? And I tell people like, I'm, I'm like, I used to be a biologist and this is what I know about the vaccine and this is why I think it's really cool, right? So, you know, maybe to them being a biologist isn't different from like being a virologist. Like there's a lot of nuance there that maybe a lot of people don't quite understand, but ultimately, you know, I feel like I have a good grasp of the science and I feel comfortable talking about it from my own perspective of like, this is why I think it's really cool. And I think that kind of communication is also very effective, generally speaking. And it, it kind of goes back to what you were saying you discovered with the YouTube videos, which is that once it became a little more personal, it was more engaging, right? Mm -hmm. And so, right. I, yeah, there's just like a real yearning for the humanity <laughs> of the yeah. person who's talking and sharing these things that mm -hmm. I, I think probably gets swept under the rug when the focus is a little bit too much on like, well, let's make sure we get all the facts straight. You, yeah. you might lose some of that touch that actually will get people to pay attention. Well, and this is such a critical, you know, again, like to use the vaccine example again, this is such a critical part of the conversation, right? Because just saying like, this is how the vaccine works and this is why it's safe. That doesn't convince people the way that going to somebody and saying, I got my vaccine. Here's how I felt after I got it. Here's why I chose to get it. Like 
people listen to other people's personal stories and use that to inform their own decisions. And so if your goal is to like help people feel connected to something scientific, you have to make it personal. And that was kind of surprising to some degree for us. Like we did a couple of videos around the time I finished my degree, like about me finishing my PhD and they got a ton of views. And I was really surprised because I was like, I didn't think people cared this much about like (laughs) as a person, just because we hadn't been that personal in our videos. And people just really do long for that kind of like personal connection. And I think people took a lot of excitement of like, you know, being able to relate to somebody's experience or kind of think about themselves having that experience in the future. And so I think really being personal is really important, which is hard for a lot of scientists because you're trained to not make your science personal, right? You can't let it be personal, but you can't separate the scientist from the work that they do, right? Like the questions you ask in the lab are influenced by how you grew up and how you were trained and, you know, the things you learned in high school, like all of these things play into the research that you do. And so trying to pretend like they don't, I think is really damaging and it makes it harder for you to communicate your science to other people. To put this into like a, a, a real life context, uh, we just released a video last week um, about, you know, preparing for grad school interviews because uh, it's that season. And initially we titled it you know, how to choose the right grad school with interview tips and advice, right? Something like that. And it tanked, you know, it was, uh, YouTube gives us analytics and it said it was 10 out of 10 in terms of performance of the last 10 videos. So we were like, oh, that's not good. And we changed the title uh, and we changed it to how I crushed my grad school interviews. Hmm. And now it's performing at one out of 10. Hmm. Uh, So it just kind of like totally transformed this video uh, and it shows how much, that personal connection can really make a difference and how attractive it is too. Yeah. When I had asked before about walking me through how, how you went about putting a video together, I don't think we ever quite came back to how that has changed. So yeah. if you think about these kinds of videos uh, or the things that are coming out now, how has the process of actually like writing, shooting, editing, animating, releasing, we've talked a little bit about the distribution side, but but how have you streamlined the, the production if, if you have? <laughs> I think it's actually gotten more challenging just because I think we have a little bit, we have more obligations now. So we recently joined a creator network that assists us with finding sponsorships, which is Mm. a really awesome opportunity, but it also means that we're like that much more beholden to deadlines. You know, we can't just skip a week. Mm. Um, But I think we've also really kind of developed a system. Like we've had to like set up our regular meetings to focus on YouTube together so that we can like talk through strategy and make plans for future videos. Um, And so I think we've really kind of actually extended our planning timeline for each individual video. So even as we're working on one video, we're already thinking about and preparing for the next one, um, which lets us do more interesting topics because we have more time to film, more time to bring in outside experts. Um, I think that's something we're trying to do more of is bring in more voices, but obviously that takes a lot more planning. but it's still a fairly similar process. I mean, in, in general, we write the script and Micah does the filming uh, and then editing, editing, editing. <laughs> right. So it kind of, I mean, for, to pull back the curtain a little bit, our typical process is, you know, we, we upload every three weeks uh, currently. And so what that usually means is uh, after a video goes up, uh, the, the next script is being written or should be near finished and then typically two weeks out we'll film uh and that gives two weeks to edit and then um 
we have to finish kind of a few days in advance for sponsorships and that sort of mm -hmm. thing to get approval and then upload on on that Wednesday. Um, I would say, yeah, to Ali's point, you know, we we have changed our process quite a bit in that, in that there's less planning and yet also more in some weird way mm -hmm. uh, where we don't have all of our scripts written in advance, but we are typically looking out four or five months in terms of planning out our topics uh, and saying like, oh, what would be interesting now? Yeah, because um, a lot of these videos are also requiring a lot more, like I was saying, like they require more efforts. Like for example, I'm going to do a video coming up next month that's going to be about a particular wearable device, but that required me to like think in advance and reach out to the company and like mm -hmm. I had to do all this review on the science that the device is purporting to use and all that stuff. So like I got them to send me one of the devices to try it myself. So in addition to like getting to talk about the science, I can also talk about how I used it, which I think people will be more interested in than if I mm -hmm. just talked about the science of the device. Mm -hmm. And I think part of why, especially lately, things have been a, a bit uh, different for us is just because of the book uh, that we've been writing uh, that has really kind of crunched our time because, you know, we both have full-time jobs and then we also have this YouTube channel and then we're also trying to write a book. So it's sort of this balance of like, okay, how am I going to use my time tonight? Um, yeah. And so that's been a little bit hard. Yeah, the the last thing I wanted to talk about was the book. So, um, would you mind giving a lowdown on what what that's all about, what the book is about, and and what the process of writing that was like? Yeah, so um, we have written this book. It's called Brains Explained: uh, Why How Your Brain Works and Why It Works That Way. And we uh, teamed up with Weldon Owen, which is a publisher out of San Francisco. And it's a really fun book. It's all about how your brain operates. Uh, and we, we sort of go through like historical perspectives and actually looking at current, you know, neuroscience and psychology. And we look towards the future as well in terms of what's up and coming, but it's all really fun. These, we do all these little vignettes. It's the sort of thing that you would have on your coffee table or like the way that I've been talking about, you'd have it in your bathroom and you could like pick it up, read a few like pages and like have something really fun to tell at the cocktail party. Yeah. It's a very pop science book. Um, a lot of like a lot of illustrations. We've been working with this really great designer through our publisher, so he's done a lot of really great work finding imagery for the book. But it's a lot of like kind of one two page pieces about all these different topics related to psychology and neuroscience, and kind of in keeping with our goals for the channel, you know talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, you know, talking about really terrible mistakes that have been made in history, mm. you know, things that were based on really dark or racist, you know, whatever kinds of, of um, ideas and sort of ways in which we're trying to improve, but also sort of these things that we can see being risks in the future. So really trying to look at things from a lot of different angles. It was a huge adventure doing this and like in the weirdest way. So we actually got contacted by the publisher in summer of 2019. And then mm. it just took us a long time to really get everything finalized and get solidified. So we ended up signing our contract and starting the book in late February of this mm. year, of 20, of tw late February of 2020. And- uh, Good time to start a project. Yeah, great yeah. time to start a project. <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, that was actually like our pandemic silver lining was we already planned on spending the next six months writing a book. So we didn't have a ton of plans to cancel. But just ended up having this sort of everything went topsy turvy. So our assistant editor unfortunately had to leave the project due to um, company issues. So we had to get a new assistant editor, and just like all this stuff kind of happened. And then of course we moved cross country in the middle of writing the book. So it was a very wild roller coaster ride. Um, but we finished the book late last fall, 
We actually just sent off our final feedback on the layouts uh, this week, and our our publication date is May 18th. It'll be okay. anywhere books are sold. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Weldon Owens' website uh, or, you know, yeah, what we would love is for you to go, you call your local bookstore and ask them to order some copies and get it from them. But yeah, we're really, we're really excited. I mean, it was really, it was really hard doing this in the middle of everything, but we're really proud of it and really, really excited to get to share it. There's a lot of stuff in there that people will recognize from our videos if they've watched our YouTube channel. There's a lot of stuff in there that has not been in our videos. So a lot of cool new topics that we might explore in future videos, or maybe it will be a book exclusive. So lots of fun stuff. We And it was a really, again, a really fun project for the two of us to work on together, a very new kind of thing to do. Um, it was very fun. So, so the the, the publisher reached out to you. You're saying you just sort of got this to like, hey, you do science stuff. And <laughs> like at what point was there like the idea for the actual book itself? Like when was it born? <laughs> was it because it sounds like you didn't go pitching this book to someone? No, we were approached by the publisher. So the assistant publisher, the assistant editor uh, had seen our channel and was a big fan of it and uh, pitched the idea to the publisher to have us write a book. And then they talked to us and, and we came up with the idea uh, and and pitched it to them, back to them and they were interested. So it really worked out. Yeah. I mean, again, to this point of like having a platform have really, especially lately, have really thought a lot about how having an existing platform has really been beneficial for a lot of other unexpected things have, have really given us a lot of opportunities we would not have otherwise had like this book. <laughs> and we think people love it. it. It's really, you know, it's, it's not a textbook, you know, this is the kind of thing it's really written in our voices and uh, a lot so of we, dad jokes, a lot of dad <laughs> jokes. Yep. All sorts of good stuff. Was it a case of just sort of thinking like you had the opportunity, like what, what, why this particular book? What, like, what, what was it about this format that, that you liked? I mean, I, we hadn't, honestly, we hadn't really thought about, like, again, I, I have always wanted to write a book, um, but had never really, like, thought in depth about what that would look like, especially not a nonfiction book. And so when the company, when the publisher approached us, they kind of pitched this idea of, like, we would like a book based on your YouTube channel. And this is the style of book that they do a lot of, these sort of like vignette kind of books. Um, so they sent us some examples to consider. And we just pulled a lot of inspiration from that. And we were like, you know, like it was kind of clear because they had found our YouTube channel and then we're looking at it from that perspective that they did kind of want this like vignettes based on our videos. And so really that gave us a lot of freedom too to cover a lot of different topics, right? We didn't have to think too much about like this really strong narrative throughout the book and instead could focus on these sort of smaller sections where we could really talk about a lot of different interesting things in science rather than just like one topic throughout. And that I think it just it just kind of grew naturally out of that. And uh, yeah, I mean, they really sort of pitched us the idea initially and then we sort of like fine-tuned it to really suit the way that we thought we could write a book. And I'm really excited about it. <laughs> well, well I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. <laughs> um, just want to say thank you to, to both of you for coming on, talking about the work that you do. This is very cool. Always looking out for, for new stuff from you guys. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having us. We really yeah. appreciate it. Thanks so much. And uh, 
thank you too for the work that you do. I really like I it I really want more people to under especially scientists to understand that there is like a whole field of research out there on how to communicate with people and like how people's communication influences the way that they think and interact with each other in the world. So I'm really excited that you're doing this stuff. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much to Ali and Micah Caldwell for taking the time to talk about what they do. Head over to this episode's page on opinionsciencepodcast.com to find links to Ali and Micah's YouTube channel, their book, and other fun stuff. This series on science communication is a special presentation of my podcast, Opinion Science, a show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. You can subscribe any old place where they have podcasts, your Apples, your Googles, your Spotify's. And you can help spread the word about the podcast and this science communication series in particular by sharing it on social media, passing it along to your scientist buddies, science writers, journalists, your favorite coffee shop baristas, and leaving kind reviews of the podcast online. Okay, thank you so much for listening. Only two more episodes left in this series. Next week, I'll talk to Steve Rathjay, who by day is a social psychology PhD student and by... Uh, other parts of the day, is a TikTok star. Well, I don't know if he'd call himself a TikTok star, but he's got more than a million followers on TikTok, where he makes short videos introducing the world to notable psychology studies, past and present. Uh, you know, a lot of people will sort of say that TikTok is like a Gen Z app. And if you look at stats, you know, it has a lot of teenagers. It has a lot of people in their 20s. It definitely has a lot of older people as well. So it's not just a Gen Z app. But um, I think what's exciting about TikTok is you're actually reaching a lot of people who have like never been exposed to psychology research like in their life. Like they're completely new to psychology research. And, you know, when I'm on Twitter, I'm in like a bubble of academics and people who are all knowledgeable about this. But there's something really exciting about TikTok, how um, people can get super excited about like basic psychology concepts that we sort of learned in our education when we were very young. And then that gets like me like excited about like psychology again, seeing all these other people get excited about psychology. 